following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Well, it's always a, an honor and a, a joy to speak with you. When Dave asked me to preach uh, on the weekend that we were going to have a marriage retreat, I said, I'd love to. He says, do you want to preach out of Genesis or do you want to just preach what's on your heart? I said, well, I don't want to get in the middle of your series. I'll just preach what's on my heart. I already knew what I wanted to preach on when he asked me. Because I've been thinking about this a lot for a long time. But then on top of it all, last week, what's he do but gives this overview of the covenants, which is a kind of a favorite topic of mine, because I realize that God only works with people through covenants. And it's really interesting to study them. I called the sermon this morning, um, Walking Out the New Covenant in the Power of the Holy Spirit. Now, of course, the New Covenant is the covenant that Jesus made with this while he was here on earth and was predicted by Jeremiah and others in the Old Testament. And this New Testament king, Messiah that was coming, of course, was predicted thousands of years before he came. And in many cases, I don't think it was 500 years was probably the last uh, prediction about his coming. Four to 500 years before he came, 700 years. Think of that. 300 and some prophecies about this great Messiah that was fulfilled in great detail in his first coming. Say that about his second coming and the church age that was produced from this. So I'm excited about sharing with you how we walk out this new covenant under the power of the Holy Spirit. The big idea that you have in your boat that I kind of expanded it after I gave it to Perry last week. And so bear with me. God's eternal plan to redeem his fallen creation is being worked out by him in cooperation with his adopted children, informed by his word, equipped by his church, and empowered by his Holy Spirit. I want to read that to you again. Think about this as we're reading it. God's eternal plan to redeem his fallen creation is being worked out by him in cooperation with his adopted children. That's us, those of us that know Christ informed by his word, equipped by his church, and empowered by his Holy Spirit. Hopefully what I can help you see before we're done today is your part in this, in this great, incredible work that God's doing today. Pastor Dave last week gave us a good overview of God's covenants with his people before and after the fall. <clears throat> I think it's interesting what a covenant agreement is. It's an agreement that God makes with man. It's not one that man makes with God. God makes the agreement and then man must abide by it. In all the covenants, God was faithful, man failed. 
But in the new covenant, something great happens. We'll probably get to that before we're done, where we should fail less often <laughs> because we have the indwelling spirit of God in us on top of a completed word of God and a history of all that has taken place since the beginning of time in front of us. So I don't know what our excuse is going to be. They briefly reviewed the covenants that God had made with Adam, with Noah, with Abraham, Moses and Israel, and with King David. And all of these covenants that he made, these agreements that he made with man, revealed God's plan for redeeming his people through this predicted Genesis 3 as Dave calls him, champion, redeemer, Messiah, which is clearly Jesus Christ and clearly explained in the New Testament as well as the Old, but especially in the book of Romans and Galatians and other places, first chapters 9 and 11. <clears throat> this Jesus, the Jewish name being Yahweh God's Savior, Emmanuel, God with us, he was born and raised under the, the Old Covenant or the Mosaic Covenant. Born of a Virgin Mary, but not conceived by man, but conceived by the Holy Spirit. That's incredibly important because he, if he was going to be the perfect sacrifice, he could have no sin. And then, of course, he didn't, like the first Adam, and then he did not sin. And so, this last Adam, as Paul called him, lived a sinless life and was the perfect, exact representation of his heavenly Father to us. So he not only was he not only come to reveal to us God, the Father, he came to show us what the perfect man is supposed to look like, and he lived perfectly. Therefore, the only perfect substitutionary sacrifice for all of our sin, only a perfect man, sinless and faithful to God, could be a sacrifice for all of our sin. He established the new covenant in his own blood and with his apostles, you know, formally explained it the night before he was betrayed. He was then crucified, took the punishment for all our sins. He died, he was buried, and on the third day he raised from the dead. All of that was predicted way back in the Old Testament, and then he predicted again many times right up until it took place. And yet those people still didn't understand. But you're going to see when they do start to understand here in a little bit. Right after he raised from the dead, he met his disciples on a mountain that he had previously told him to go to in Galilee. And he began to lay out for them what was to be accomplished between right then and until he came again at the end of time to complete the redemption of the whole creation. So he gives them this mission, this commission of what they're supposed to be doing. 
in the next 40 days. Now, he's, he's, he, he raises from the dead, but he doesn't ascend for 40 days. He's on the earth for 40 days. And in that 40 days, some amazing stuff happens. And it was all intentional on his part, and the way he went about it is pretty amazing. He appeared to his close followers and friends, including Peter, including his half-brother James, including uh, Mary Magdalene, including the apostles, and a total of over 500 people during that four, uh, 40 days. He went about teaching them about his kingdom, which they were confused about. They were still seeing a earthly kingdom being produced for the nation of Israel, Rome being kicked out, that whole thing. He's teaching them about all that. He's going to even give them a little more information, and we'll see in the first chapter of the book of Acts. And he proved during that time, without a shadow of a doubt, to all these people that he wasn't just a ghost. Now, people say, oh, that's crazy. What are, you, what are you talking about? He showed that he was the resurrected Son of God, Son of Man, their Savior, the same Jesus they'd spent three years with. And if you look at the accounts, they thought they'd seen a ghost. And he said, no, 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 it's me. He says, see, look at my hands. Look at, the, look at the scar on my side. Anybody got any food to eat? Ghosts don't eat. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. Now, you think, why is that so important? One of the main heresies that come along soon after Christ had ascended was Gnosticism and several other things that tried to say he wasn't really a man. He didn't really come in the flesh. You read about that in 1 John and other places. So he was making it very clear that he was going to go to heaven as a resurrected, glorified man. And that's important when you look at eternity and the new heaven and the new earth. We won't get into all that. He made it extremely clear over that time especially to the 11 and especially to Peter in his times of meeting with them. Now, that's what happened during that 40 days. We'll talk a little bit more about the end of that 40 days in a second here, but let's go back to the mountain, that mountain where he gave them what we call the Great Commission. What happened was they're up there waiting for him. He shows up, and they all fall down and worship him. And yet some doubted, it says. People say, what does that mean? Well, you could spend a lot of time on that, but it seems that some had a little trouble recognizing him until he spoke and began to reveal himself to them. But let's look at what he said to them now after they've worshipped and saw him, and they're standing in front of him. He says something he'd never said before. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, and you notice he says heaven and earth. He's been given all authority in heaven 
and on earth. Go, therefore, because of this, now go make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We'll see how he's going to be with them during this whole time here in a few minutes. But so at the end of these 40 days, he meets with his disciples before he goes up to heaven. We read about it in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. And as he's ready to go back to heaven to be exalted as king of kings, lord of lords, at his father's right hand to reign over heaven and earth. He instructs his apostles and answers their most burning question. They're still wanting to know about the kingdom. When are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel? Let's read what he says in Acts chapter 1. Now, those of you who don't know, Luke wrote the book of Acts and the Gospel of Luke. He's the only Gentile author that we know of in the Bible. <clears throat> he wrote to Theophilus earlier the Gospel of Luke, and you'll see this in this statement, and now he's writing to him about the risen Christ and <clears throat> the ascension or Christ going back to heaven. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all the that Jesus began to do and teach until, until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands to the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after suffering by many, uh, after suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So he's been teaching them about the kingdom through this whole 40 days. <clears throat> Stuff they didn't understand, they're starting to understand. So now let's see what goes on. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I always thought that was a funny question. I mean, <laughs> but he's trying to make a point here. See, they're still looking at and longing for this Messiah. It's taken off. Where's he going? 
already told him that's what he's going to do. And it's better that I go to be with the father for you. But you're sad about it. You shouldn't be because the father's greater than me. I'm going to go be with him. And I'm going to send you a new comforter. One that's going to empower you to do this. But they're still staring up into heaven. Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So I said, listen, someday this Jesus, who just went into heaven, coming back, he went in the glory cloud, he'll come back in the glory cloud someday. What's these angels and what was Jesus trying to say to these people? These are the last words Jesus gave them. He said, it's not for you to spend your time trying to figure out when the Father is going to do this. I've given you a job to do, and I'm going to send you the power of the Holy Spirit to carry out this work. That's what I want you to focus on. They're to focus not on when the Father will restore the kingdom to Israel, but to understand his mission for them. To go make disciples of the nations. But first, they must stay in Jerusalem for 10 days. He didn't say 10 days. He just said stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. So he goes back to heaven. He's coronated as king, goes up to the Ancient of Days, receives his kingdom, and look what happens. He sends the Holy Spirit in power to do his work. He said, I have to go back to the Father, and then I'll send you the Holy Spirit. So he then ascends into heaven in the cloud, and then the angel said, and listen to this, don't keep staring into the heaven. Someday he will come back, just like he left. Now go do his work. I want you to catch something here. Many people spend a lot of time trying to determine when Christ is coming back, and it's not bad. It's in the Bible. It needs to be studied. But that shouldn't be the focus. The focus is, am I doing the Great Commission? Am I carrying out as an ambassador the work he's given us to do as the church? So 120 people hang out in Jerusalem in a room and pray and wait like Jesus asked. And on Pentecost... Ten days later, Jesus sends the Holy Spirit in great power. And they go from 120 disciples to 3,120 in one day. Now, you think you got a job of discipling in this church? <laughs> how, would, how would you like to have that one thrown on you? And then a few days later, 4,000 more new converts. And you see in the book of Acts, in chapter 2 to 4, discipleship starts in a big way. From this 120 disciples to thousands, wow. We've been trying to gear up for the growth in our church so we can disciple and treat people like they need to be treated. And sometimes that can be seem overwhelming, but it shouldn't because we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have his word. 
We have his church. We have families. We have everything we need to do the job. So discipleship begins exploding. And if you think about by the time you hit the book of Acts chapter 6, they're already trying to figure out how to deal with widows and orphans and all these people that have been brought to them to care for. They're caring for them spiritually, they're caring for them emotionally, they're caring for them financially. And they're doing a big, big job. That's when they add in the deacons to the elders. They're starting to build the structure of the New Testament church. But then, because it's so exciting and so much great things are happening, these people that came there for Pentecost came from all over the world, and a lot of them weren't going home, and it was great, a serious problem including, as we see later, quite a while later, quite a few issues. So, actually, persecution begins to hit the church. James, the apostles, killed. Saul of Tarsus begins to go on the rampage. Stephen's martyred. And the church is driven out of Jerusalem except for the apostles. I'm sure some stayed there. They went all over the world with the gospel. And great things started to happen all over the world. But then most of that persecution was at the hands of the Saul of Tarsus. And he's going to go to Damascus and drag out more families and bring them back to Jerusalem and have them persecuted and killed. Because he thought it was a false gospel. And he meets the Savior on that road and the Savior recruits him. (laughs) People are always worried about their choice. Here's a man that was persecuting the church. God chose him. Blinded him and gave him a mission. I, I think of he becomes this Apostle that was used mightily to spread the gospel to the Gentile world and even some to the Jews. The ripples of his work went from Jerusalem to the end of the, the uh, extreme of the Roman Empire in, in, in only 40, 30 to 40 years. Half of the book of Acts is following Paul's great commission work. And God used him to write 13 of the 27 books of the New Testament. And in the book of Acts and in Ephesians and in the Timothy epistles and Titus and others as well, he modeled and wrote down how he evangelized, planted and developed churches, supported churches, and lastly, literally, how he believed God changes people to be like his beloved son, Jesus Christ. And he, he told us that in 2 Timothy 3, 4 through 17 and many other places. And so God took this man who was persecuting the church and used him to reach the Gentile world. That's us. We're here because of that and that being passed on. Now, I want to talk about his methods in a minute, but I want you to realize, first of all, that when we started CLF back in 2003, that was the model we used to build the church. 
And I think you'll see what we're talking about as we read here in the book of Acts. You'll see as I read this, and I hope you observe this carefully, that Paul's humble leadership, his servant's heart as a leader, and methods of caring for and developing discipling disciples was through public teaching of the Word of God, house-to-house teaching and fellowship and care, and one-on-one ministry and counseling or in-depth discipleship as needed day and night for three years with tears. It was a three-pronged, I used to say three, but that's two and a half. So <clears throat> it's kind of hard. This finger doesn't shape right because they cut it off too and they put it back on. So please bear with me. That's three. A three-legged stool of how to build a church. The Apostle Paul planted more churches, affected more lives, and the churches that he didn't plant, he supported, wrote to, disciplined, trained others to go back and work in them, and he affected the whole known world in his lifetime. So I figure that's a good place to learn. And God had it put in his word as the inspired word of God. So as we read this, I want you to think about these attributes in the life of Paul and then the actions he took to build this church. He was there for three years. It's a place where he spent more time than any other church. As a matter of fact, there's an awful lot written about this church. You'll see he wrote to them the book of Ephesians, which is, much of where he also lays out how he did this. He also, this church of Ephesus, the Apostle John, through the revelation of Jesus Christ in the book of Revelation, talks about this church. And so this church is important, and I and I want you to see how he did this, because this is how we need to do it, and it's how we are doing it. Now, he why is he in Miletus? He went to Miletus because he was bringing an offering for the Jewish people in Jerusalem because they were starving due to a famine, and he was on a hurry to get there before Pentecost. And so he actually sailed right past Ephesus. Now, he was there. why did he do that? Because he couldn't afford to get hung up there with all of his friends. As much as he would love to, he had to go past. So he went to Miletus sent a message to him and said, elders, come here. I need to talk to you. I need to give you some last words. I'll probably never see you again. And so he, they, they walked 30 miles to meet him, listen to him, and then walk 30 miles home. That's the kind of commitment they had. And here he said to him. And when they had came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to the Greeks of repentance towards God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Same gospel to the Jews and the Gentiles. There's one way of 
Salvation is through the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. He'd had prophets tell him, wrap belts around him and say, you're going to be brought in captivity. People were weeping and trying to get him to not to go. But he knew he was supposed to. He'd already got from God where he was supposed to do. But I do not, now listen to this, I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus. He'd already been stoned and left for dead. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been beaten. He'd been, he'd been through it all. He'd been rejected. He had one thing in mind. I am going to finish what God has given me to do. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom, there's that word again, will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to your flock. Remember, these are elders he's speaking to here. But most all these are principles apply to all of us. In which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Uh, whose blood was shed? Jesus. It's the blood of God. He's the second person of the Trinity. And it says here that it was God's blood that was shed. So that ought to help you if somebody says Jesus isn't God, okay? <laughs> Obviously, he is. He obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. It's paramount that elders stay alert to false doctrine and false teachers. To be alert. To guard the flock. Therefore, be alert. Remember, for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. Every one of them. He had spent a lot of time with those elders in council. The word there for admonish is nuthetetho in the Greek and it's Simply identifying sin, reproving it, seeing corrections made, and a new uh, a new direction. So it's repentance, confession, and restoration to godly behavior. And now I commend you to the God, uh, to God, and to the Word of His grace, the gospel, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. So he didn't only take care of himself. He took care of all the people that traveled with him through his business and his hard work. In all things that, I, that I've shown you that by working hard in this way, you must help the weak 
and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we don't know where Paul got that because we don't find it written anywhere. We know that the Lord either taught that to him himself or the apostles shared it with him because it's not written anywhere. But it's a fabulous principle, isn't it? Isn't it true that it's more blessed to give than receive? It's a blessing to be given something when you need it, but what a blessing to be the one to be able to give it to somebody who's in need. It is more blessed to give than receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all, and there was much weeping on the part of all. And, of course, then he left. Some thinks he did see him again, but some say he never did. This is the great apostle's model of building Christ-like people and churches and nations. He saw the church as an equipping center where we learn to live every aspect of life in a Christ-like way. When Jesus and the Apostle Paul went about teaching the gospel of the kingdom, this is what they were talking about. The gospel of the kingdom is this, Christians living submitted to their king under his lordship, living life the way he wants it lived. Where Christ reigns in the heart exists the kingdom of God. If you're a businessman and you're a Christian, your business should be a kingdom business ran like Christ would have you run it. If you're a parent, your parenting should look like Christ's instructions on how to parent. It doesn't matter what your occupation or station in life is. Whatever you do, if Christ reigns in that activity, the kingdom exists there. And so we need to see ourselves as people representing our king and That's what draws people to him. I want to take time. I didn't do this in the first service, but I'm going to do it here. I want to read that Philippians passage that he talks about the church being the equipping center. It's just Philippians, or excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like to read more of it, but I'm just going to start in verse 11. Think about these things that Paul's talking about here, he's, he's basically earlier said, I've given you gifts like victorious kings did in that time. They gave gifts after they were victorious. He went back to heaven and he gave us gifts. The Holy Spirit being the biggest gift, but also people with certain gifts to equip the church for the work of ministry. So let's see what he says here. And he gave the apostles and the prophets the evangelists, the shepherds, the teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So what we're modeling to the world is Christ-likeness. That's what we're modeling. If people want to know why you live that way, then we share it's because of Christ and his gospel that transforms lives, gives us purpose, and changes directions. 
so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness of deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth, that's the word of God, that's what's true, in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, so every person doing the equipping is like a joint. It's very important. But when each part is working properly, it takes the, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. When you see churches flourishing, it's either through compromise, and it's not a true church, and it's not flourishing for the right reasons, or it's flourishing because this is happening. The word of God is preached. They're in sweet fellowship and worship of God. Church discipline is in order. The sacraments, the ordinances of the Lord's Supper and baptism are being carried out. And the body life inspires individual family work and community life. And Paul's laying out how we do this. To equip the church, saints, for the believing people to do the work of ministry, which is the Great Commission. Public preaching and teaching, house to house, you see that? We knew that someday our church would grow beyond the point of having close, intimate fellowship in the whole body. You can't all shake each other's hands here. You can't all go out to lunch together today. You can't, you can't do all that in the big gathering. But you can be a part of a care group where you can keep those intimate, close relationships. You can do it outside of the gathering here. You can be in D groups. You can be in Bible studies. There's no end to the ministry of fellowship, but also drawing non-believers into that mix as well. We've always seen the church as the equipping center, not the evangelistic center. The gospel was preached here this morning. The gospel is preached every Sunday, but most people that we're preaching to on a Sunday are believers. We're equipping the saints to go do the evangelism. That's how we multiply and expand way beyond what we can do as a church, is each one teach one. Paul said he taught faithful men to teach faithful men. He mentioned four generations of passing on the gospel. It wasn't all meeting in a building. It was in their lifestyle. It was in their neighborhoods, it was in their work, it was in their recreation, it was in every aspect of their life. All of us are, in, are engaged in this great kingdom-building mission, either in our personal lives, you all have relationships, they should be drawing people to Christ. In your family, an awful lot of us have unbelievers in our family, don't we? 
An awful lot of us have family members that need our care and our attention and our input. And then there's the church and there's the workplace and there's recreation. I got to where I didn't hardly ever go hunting or fishing if I didn't take somebody with me. I selfishly loved a bass fish by myself. But nobody gets saved that way. No, you know, fish don't talk. Uh, so, if I go bass fishing, I go with somebody else that likes the bass fish and would like to learn. I got somebody here, we're going to do that here not too long, but he's already saved. So, we can just enjoy the bass fishing, right? My point is, we can disciple one another. We can give input in that friendship and that relationship in that time together. So even recreation, any place, any capacity you serve in, you're an ambassador of Jesus Christ to that, whoever it is you run into that day. I used to get up every morning when I was running my logging business and my sawmill business, and I'd say, well, Lord, who are you going to send here today? Help me not to mess it up. Help me reflect you in our conversation. My grandkids used to get the biggest kick out of it when I would start witnessing to somebody that was brought a load of logs, and I get down off my loader after I've unloaded, and we start talking, and he sees us shaking hands, and pretty soon we're talking about Christ. Because they start asking me about the family and everything. I don't know if God just did that. But one day, it was really funny, because I come in with a load of logs, and I'm looking over, and my boys are supposed to be working, and they're sitting over here talking to this truck driver, and I'm thinking, what's going on here? You guys are supposed to be working. But I see the smile on their face, and I think, this I know my grandkids, and they're hard workers, so I thought something good's going on here. So I pull the truck up. This guy, I unload my log. He pulls up with his truck, and I unload him. I get off, and I start engaging him, and pretty soon I'm thinking, this guy's a Christian. And he starts asking me questions. Now my, my grandkids, they just quit work, and they come right over here, and they're watching because now Grandpa's on the hot seat, and they want to see it. And this guy says, you're a believer. I said, I am. He said, what makes you think you're going to heaven? I said, well, I'm dependent on nothing but the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ and faith in him. He says, shake hand, brother. He wanted to know if I really knew what the gospel was. And my grandkids thought it was really funny that I got evangelized instead of the truck. <laughs> but that's that's just the way you do it. Everywhere you go, you go on an airplane, you sit down next to somebody. I find out if they want to talk or they don't. If they don't want to talk, let them sleep. Because I figure if they want to talk, God's working in their heart. And they're going to get the gospel. Somehow, some way, I don't know how. I have no idea when I start. But I know God will direct the conversation. I hope this is what gets you up every morning. I hope you've got more purpose than just your marriage. I hope you got more going for you than just your kids, just your job. As wonderful as those are, the most important thing is that you're an ambassador for Christ to them and to whoever you run into that day. He's building his church. And nothing can or will stop it. Not even the gates of hell. They're being torn down everywhere God's people live out his plan under his lordship, empowered by his spirit and directed by his word.
Athanasius would say about the church in the fourth century, that they would go from city to city. And he says the demons and the witches would flee ahead of us in panic, running from us. They were on the move. They were going to share the gospel and disciple the nations, and nothing was going to stop them. Well, what's our excuse? We got the whole Bible. We got all that history. We got telephones. We got vehicles. We got all ways to communicate. We need to get the vision back of the Great Commission and see it as the centerpiece in our lives and our purpose for living. All the other things that we enjoy are just a part of it. And Jesus says that in passage in Acts that when his father determines it's time for him to come back, he will. And he'll put anything in order that isn't already accomplished by his church. He's coming back. Are we ready for him to come back in the sense that we've been found faithful on a daily basis doing the things he tells us to do? What a day will that be? when he does come back. But in the meantime, now, you know, there's only one generation of people that's going to see him come back. Well, we're all going to be there, so we're all going to see it. I mean, but there's only going to be one living generation when the Lord comes back. The hope of the gospel, the hope of the Christian is not to be living on that day. It's that you know him. And he delivers you from this life to him personally, face-to-face, in his presence, in heaven, with him. And then when he comes for the complete redemption of the body and the redemption of the whole creation, you get to be a part of that too, whether you're living or whether you've gone ahead. But the point being, he's commissioned us to do a work. He ultimately. He'll give us a new heaven and earth, and he will be our God, and we will be his people in perfect fellowship on a perfect, sinless earth. Can you imagine? I can't even imagine. I can't imagine what all he's got planned for us. He says he went to prepare a place for us, and he wants us to be with him. But in the meantime, he sent us on a job. Go disciple the nations starting in Jerusalem and in Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. To us, that would be in your home, in your workplace, in your community, throughout to the ends of the earth. Whether you go or send somebody, you're doing that work. It's what gives us purpose. It's what gives us meaning. I want to throw in one other thing before I ask you a couple of questions. Paul talked about the corporate church a lot, but he also went into great detail on how we as individuals change from what we are to being like Christ. And one of our greatest goals in life, this side of heaven, is to be like Christ. Because when we are like him and we're living like him and we're speaking like him, people notice a difference. And they want to know him. And you get to share the gospel then. Okay? So I want to just read you a passage because I think it'll help you make personal application of what I've been talking about here. 
He's talking to Timothy right before he dies, and he writes him this because he wants him to know this, and, and he wants him to pass it on to the church there at Ephesus. He says in uh, verse 14 of 2 Timothy 3, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred scriptures, which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith. Now, they only had the Old Testament. So they were saved by faith in the Old Testament as they are in the New. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Faith in Jesus Christ produces salvation. So he had learned enough from his grandmother and his mother and from the Apostle Paul, of course, in the New Testament. He had learned how to become a believer in Jesus Christ. And then this is what he says to Timothy. All Scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for one teaching. In other words, you're going to read the word of God and it's going to be your mirror that you can judge your life by. It's a revelation of the character of God, the attributes of God, and we're to be like him. So if you'll study these scriptures that have been breathed out by God, You'll see what doesn't line up, and you'll be reproved by it, meaning you'll come under conviction. I don't mean you feel conviction. That is part of it. it but it's an actual legal term that says you're going to see that you're not living like this. Therefore, you are guilty of sin, and sin is worthy of death. Therefore, you need a Savior, but you also need to confess your sin, turn from it, repent, turn from it, confess it, and begin to do what I say instead. So that's the correction. You see correction up there is next. So when I recognize and I'm convicted, I see what needs to be put off and what needs to be put on in its place, and I focus on the put on, put on, put on, put on Christ, put on Christ, put on his character, put on his ways, and then I do that to the point that I do it in a disciplined fashion over time. That's the training part to where that becomes who I am. You're not only a new person in Christ in God's eyes immediately, now you're becoming like Christ in reality, and that's what people see. They don't see your position in Christ. They see your life. That's your testimony. We overcome Satan, by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony, the gospel and how we're living out the gospel, our testimony, you can't refute someone's testimony. I used to have an atheist would come and debate with me and argue with me, He'd come over there and have me cut lumber, but I couldn't get lumber cut. He was always trying to convince me to become an atheist. Well, it was a futile attempt, but he kept at it. Finally, I said to him, is that your house right over there? He said, yeah, right across. I said, okay, great. You know, Crowley Valley Road goes right past your house, does it not? Yes, it does. I said, well, let me tell you a story, and then you tell me if there's no God. He said, what's that got to do? I said, just hang on. Told him about a time we were coming home from church, my wife and my kids. We're in this little Bronco, too. It's snowing like crazy. we got about 40 inches of snow. So I'm driving about 40 miles an hour. I'm just plugging along, talking to Lynn and the kids, and everything's fine. 
And the Lord just starts in my heart telling me to slow down. And I'm thinking, what? Okay, so I just slowed down. Then it says, Bill, what are you doing? I said, well, I think the Lord's telling me to slow down. She said, well, okay. And so I slowed down about 20 miles an hour, and I'm getting real close to the Thornley Valley turnoff. And he's, slow down, slow down, slow down. I come to the bridge there, and it just says stop. So I just stopped. The kids said, Dad, what are you doing? I said, well, I think I'm supposed to stop. And right then, this car comes around that sharp 90-degree turn, spins out of control, crashes right through the guardrail, dives off into the creek right in front of us. We get out, help him, and get the ambulance and everything. He's okay. I said, who do you spoke was talking to me here? I didn't know the car was coming. I wasn't talking to myself. Who was trying to impress upon me to stop? He said, well, I don't know what to say about that. I said, well, the fact is you're going to stand before that God someday, and you talk all you want about the fact he doesn't exist, but he does. And his son died for you. And if you reject him, you'll be under judgment. He didn't come back. I thought, I, and I don't think it was because I shared the gospel, but I shared the gospel with him several times before, but he couldn't refute. He didn't want to argue with the testimony. So I'm telling you, your testimonies, and that's a unique kind of a weird testimony. It doesn't happen. only happened like that once in my life. But it was pretty hard to refute that that was God. Who else would have been telling me to slow down? I mean, I didn't. I was already going slow enough. I didn't think I needed to slow down. He preserved my family right there. Maybe that other person, too. My point is, in the meantime, till he comes again, or till we go to be with him, we've got a fabulous partnership with the God of heaven, the king of the universe, to do a discipling of the nations. What an exciting thing to get up to. So i got two questions for you. Question one, do you see yourself in this role? And are you excited to get up each day to live in and with and for Jesus Christ? Ask yourself that question. It's an exciting life. I've been, my wife and I and our family, we've been through all kinds of trials, but it was an exciting life because we knew God was in charge and he was walking with us. Even when she went home to be with the Lord a year and a half ago, it was okay because whatever God allows is good. And if we don't look at it that way, you're going to be fighting internally all the time with your circumstances, maybe even angry with God. God knows exactly what he's doing. He's perfectly wise. He is perfectly sovereign. And he is absolute love. So he's not going to pick the wrong thing for you to be allowed in your life, as tough as it might be. It's to build you up into Christ. It's to testify to somebody else's life who observes you. It's to honor him, to glorify him in the earth. And you get to be a part of it. Question two. The last question. Regardless of your position in your family or in your church or your work life or even in your community, do you see yourself as your Savior's representative to each and every place you go, realizing that he has bought you with his own blood, loved you, 
sent you and empowered you to go to his world to engage with people and be the person he uses to model the life that draws them to him. So you can also give them the most important message they will ever hear. A message of hope for them now and in eternity. I, I hope today that this message will inspire you to get to know your Savior better. Study his word to help you see this great purpose he has for you. That it adds value to everything you do. Every word you say has the power of life or death. It's just an absolute joy to live for the king. But you'll, you'll have hard times, but he'll walk with you. And I hope that you see that that's just not for pastors. That's not for deacons and elders. That's for all of us. Every one of us are ambassadors, representatives for Christ. I hope it inspires you to get up every morning and say, Lord, this is your day. Who am I supposed to meet with today? How should I treat my wife today? How should I parent my children today? Let's pray. Father, you are amazing. Your plan is impeccable. Your son is a mighty, mighty savior. Our king, our Lord, our friend, our savior. What an amazing thing. And you called us to go and affect our world. May you encourage us, empower us, and strengthen us as we humble ourselves before you. And may you be glorified, and may we be built up and encouraged, and others drawn to you. We'll just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.